Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 122. Born to the Purple. In September, in the year 905, at last, Leo the Wise got what he always wanted. Zoe Carbonopsina gave birth to a son. He was born in the most special room in the palace known as the Purple Room, or Porphyra. The room was decorated with porphyry columns and hung with purple silk. Only imperial children were allowed to be born in the room. The baby was named Constantine, and would soon acquire the other name, Constantine Porphyrogenitus, which means Constantine the Purple Born. Unfortunately, the baby was small and weak and not expected to live that long. Also, because Leo and Zoe were not married, Constantine could not be baptised and so could not become emperor. The fourth marriage would have to take place. But how? It was illegal, and Leo had written the law himself. But Leo the Wise needed to marry in order to legitimise his new son and allow him to be his successor. Unfortunately, the friendly patriarch was dead, and the current one was never going to allow it. Poor Leo. He finally had a son, but the son was not allowed to be his heir. The emperor came up with a clever scheme. If he could get the church to agree that Constantine could be baptised, then he could be his heir. The patriarch agreed that Constantine could be christened, but only if Zoe was exiled. Leo agreed, and Zoe was sent away. Constantine was baptised and became heir to the throne. Clever old Leo wasn't going to live without his girlfriend, so three days after the baptism, Zoe was brought back to the palace. Clever and naughty. The patriarch was furious. Then Leo did the unthinkable. He secretly married Zoe, and then, after it was all done, proclaimed that she was his wife. The patriarch was now blindly furious. He shouted and raged at the emperor, telling him this was totally unacceptable, and remember, it was you who wrote the law. The patriarch was in a difficult position, and there were some enemies of Leo trying to persuade him that this terrible marriage should never be allowed to continue. In the end, Patriarch Nicholas had no choice. Clever old Leo, though, wasn't taking no for an answer, and he found a churchman called Euthemius who said he'd help if he was made Patriarch. He couldn't just allow the marriage, though. He'd need to find a decent excuse. Leo the Wise wasn't called Leo the Wise for no reason. He was ready for this, too. He wrote to the Pope asking if he could marry for a fourth time. The Western Church had no problem with multiple marriages so long as the last wife was good and dead so he said he was fine with it. Leo invented some charges of conspiracy against Nicholas, saying he had been in league with Andronicus Ducus and had the Patriarch deposed and exiled. The Pope and the other three Patriarchs agreed to this, and Euthemius was proclaimed Patriarch of Constantinople. The marriage of Leo and Zoe was then made legal in the eyes of the Church, although Leo could only enter the churches as a penitent. This meant he wasn't allowed to enter parts of the Church and was not allowed to sit down during a service. This was a small price to pay, and Leo accepted it happily. Leo the Wise had got his fourth wife. The last years of Leo VI's reign were happy for him and his family, although Himerius' navy suffered a terrible defeat to the Saracens while trying to take Crete. Leo the Wise died, aged just 45, on the 11th of May 912, having reigned, obviously wisely, for 26 years. His last, quite odd words were said to be, Thirteen months and an evil time. Leo VI was not a great military leader. Unlike many of his predecessors, he never led an army into battle. He had people to do that for him. It just wasn't his thing. He was, though, learned and believed in codification. 
His reorganisation of the whole legal system was a feat which few other emperors could even have envisaged, let alone carried out. He was also responsible for the production of a text called the Tactica. This volume described how to deal with the battle tactics of the Arabs. The work recommended avoiding direct contact with Arab raiding parties. The best method was, it said, to wait and then follow and harass the raiders as they were leaving. They would then be laden with booty or prisoners, and so it would be easier to catch and kill. But he was not a fighter himself, and this still could have caused him problems. Many previous emperors who had not had military leanings turned out to be poor leaders, whose reigns were difficult and sometimes disastrous for the empire. This wasn't the case for Leo the Wise. He worked diligently to lead his people, with sense and compassion, and his reign was a prosperous one. He let his generals fight for him, and it's testament to his leadership that there was no serious rebellion. Like Antoninus Pius, Anastasius and Justinian before him, he was able to lead without being able to fight. The people of the empire forgave him completely for the heresy of his many marriages. This in itself shows the esteem in which he was held. So, Leo VI was dead, but fortunately he'd had a son, and so the Macedonian dynasty could carry on. There was though one rather significant problem. Before the boy could become emperor, the current co-emperor had to have his turn, and so, much to everyone's dismay, Basil's youngest son, Alexander, became Basileus. Alexander hated his brother. Alexander hated his brother's wife. Alexander hated his brother's advisers, and Alexander seemed to hate everything his brother had done, and probably everything that his brother looked at, touched or even thought about. The reign of the youngest son of Basil the Macedonian was a complete disaster. First he sent Zoe into exile, put Himerius into prison, and forced the patriarch Euthemius to abdicate. The old patriarch Nicholas was put back in place. Many of the advisers were exiled or executed. Next, the emperor received some envoys from Simeon of Bulgaria, and told them he wasn't going to pay the tribute agreed by Leo to keep the peace. It's said that Alexander was drunk when they arrived, and was very unpleasant to them. Simeon, of course, decided this man was unfit to be emperor, and would probably not put up a fight if he declared war. Simeon began to prepare for war. Patriarch Nicholas took a leaf out of Alexander's book, and tried to sack every bishop who had been put in place by or supported Euthemius. Unfortunately for Nicholas, the bishop simply refused to go, and pretty soon he backed down and let most of them stay. Many years of partying and not looking after himself had taken its toll on Alexander, and his body and mind were not going to hold up for long. It said he thought the ancient bronze boar, a kind of big metal pig in the Hippodrome, was his other self. There were even rumours he was trying to bring back paganism. He acted with cruelty against virtually everyone, and his reign was one of terror for his people. Fortunately, Alexander didn't wear the purple for very long. The emperor died of a stroke after playing a game of polo, much to everyone's delight, on the 6th of June 913, aged 43. Maybe Leo the Wise was wiser than anyone actually knew. Alexander's brief reign, which could definitely be described as an evil time, had lasted 13 months. The Macedonian dynasty was, possibly, in trouble. After two very good emperors had spent 45 years on the throne, moving the empire towards greatness, one very bad emperor had spent one year attempting to ruin it all. Fortunately, Alexander didn't last too long, but his death didn't end the crisis. Leo the Wise had spent many years trying to have a son so that he had an heir, and eventually he had one. But there were two problems. When his uncle died, Constantine Porphyrogenitus was only seven years old, and so was too young to rule by himself. 
Constantine the Seventh, as he was crowned, was also a sickly child. Everyone was surprised he'd lasted this long, and it was no certainty he'd last much longer. Alexander had named Patriarch Nicholas as regent for Constantine, and the Patriarch was determined to have all of the power. He forced Zoe Carbonopsina to become a nun and be known simply as Sister Anna. Nicholas had a dastardly plan. He was going to support the rebellion of a man called Constantine Ducas. Yep, it's that Ducas family again. Constantine was the son of the former rebel Andronicus Ducas. Constantine Ducas entered Constantinople one night with only a few men. It was clear he had support inside the city, and he didn't think he'd need too many men to gain control of the empire. Constantine Ducas was wrong, though. The magister had found out about the plot and was waiting for him. When Ducas entered the city, he was attacked and all his men were killed. He tried to escape, but his horse slipped on the wet pavement. One of the magister's men caught up with him and severed his head with one stroke. The short rebellion was over. Nicholas, although he'd been in on the plot from the start, had all of the conspirators executed. He was lucky, and nobody found out about what he'd done. He didn't have much time to rest and think about what to do next, though, as very soon afterwards, Simeon and the Bulgars were under the walls of Constantinople. Simeon knew he couldn't take Constantinople by force. His great-great-grandfather, Crum, had not managed to, and Simeon was too clever to think he would have any more luck. But Simeon wasn't interested in taking the city by force. No, he wanted to be emperor himself. And how was he going to achieve this? Well, what's the best way of becoming emperor if you aren't a member of the imperial family? Yeah, marry into it. So Simeon switched to plan B and offered his daughter as the future wife of the boy emperor. Nicholas agreed and Simeon went home, sat back and waited to become emperor himself. The people of Constantinople, though, were horrified. They were horrified the emperor may have to marry a barbarian and they were horrified that Zoe had been treated so badly and they were horrified by rumours that Nicholas had supported Constantine Ducas. Zoe saw her chance, left the convent and returned to the city. The regency of Nicholas fell apart and Zoe became regent for her son. She ruled in Constantine's name along with a council of wise men. The first thing she did was cancel the promise of Constantine VII's marriage to the Bulgar princess. There was no way she was allowing her son to marry the daughter of a man whose great-great-grandfather used the skull of an emperor as a drinking cup. Simeon, of course, was furious. His clever plan to marry into the empire was blown apart when Nicholas fell from power. Oh well, he thought, plan B's failed, so back to plan A. The Bulgar army was strong, and so he may as well try invading again. So, once more, Thrace was plundered by the Bulgar army, and the threat to the empire was great. Zoe had already shown herself to be an intelligent leader and had dispatched her generals to win some important battles. They beat the forces of the Caliphate of Baghdad in Armenia and defeated the Saracens in southern Italy. Zoe was clever in her strategy against the Bulgars too. She made an agreement with the Pechenegs that they would attack the Bulgars if she sent some, some ships to ferry them across the Danube. She dispatched the new Drungarius, who had replaced Himerius, an Armenian man named Romanus Lecapanus to do the job. Meanwhile, Leo Phocus, son of Nicephorus Phocus, was sent with the imperial army to attack the Bulgars from the side. All was going well until Romanus had a massive row with the Pechenegg commander. They shouted and raged at each other until Romanus refused to ferry the Pechenegs across the river. The barbarians eventually got fed up and went home. The Bulgars only had one enemy to fight now, 
and they defeated Leo's army at the Battle of Achelous. The army was massacred, and the navy had sailed back to the Bosphorus, and so were not even around to save the survivors. Leo Focus escaped, and made his way back to the capital. Zoe was hopping mad. She ordered that Romanus Lecapanus be blinded. His refusal to carry the eggs over the Danube was treason, and he was going to pay for it with his eyes. Fortunately for him, she was persuaded just to have the Admiral exiled. This would turn out to be a stroke of good fortune for the whole empire before too long. Zoe realised that the regency for her son wasn't going to last too long if things carried on like this. Amazingly, Constantine Porphyrogenitus was still alive. Sickly, but still alive. Unfortunately though, there was no telling how much longer he'd survive, and the empire needed some stability so it could face the scary threat of the Bulgars. Zoe decided she'd better get married and make her husband emperor, so there would be a healthy adult rather than an unhealthy child in charge. She decided that Leo Focus would make a good emperor and made plans to marry him. The Focus family were another of the important families of the empire and were as ambitious as the Ducas family. In time, both of these families would produce an emperor, but it was another family who were only just becoming important in the 900s who would eventually found the last great dynasty of the empire. But that is not for now. We have a lot of history to get through before we will properly meet the Komnini. The people had by now become a bit tired of Zoe. She'd done quite well, but the disaster at Achelaus had not done much for her popularity. They also blamed Leo Focus, even though it was Romanus Lecapanus that had caused the disaster. In the end, Constantine VII's tutor persuaded the young emperor to write to another of the empire's leaders and ask him to come to his aid. This he did, and Zoe's regency was at an end. She was packed off to a convent and became Sister Anna again. Leo Focus was blinded and paraded round the Hippodrome on a donkey. And who was it that organised all of this? Amazingly, it was the man who was really responsible for the army being beaten by the Bulgars. Romanus Lecapanus had been born sometime around 870, the son of a man with the wonderful name Theophylact the Unbearable. There is no record of what made Theophylact unbearable, but it seems that even if he was unbearable, he was also lucky. He'd been on hand to rescue Basil the Macedonian from a battle, and his family had risen up through the ranks during the rise and success of the Macedonian dynasty. Romanus had risen to be Strategos of the Samian theme, and eventually to Drungarius, the commander of the navy. Romanus took his chance. He did what Simeon had tried to do and married his daughter to Constantine the Seventh. Soon he was made Caesar, and three months later, in December 920, he was made co-emperor. Romanus was a proper co-emperor, not like the previous ones who had just been heirs. He began to rule in his own right, and Constantine the Seventh became the junior emperor. He was, though, still emperor in his own right, he just didn't do any ruling. Now, Romanus was a usurper, just like any other, but he was an unusual usurper. Usually, usurpers usurped utterly, and the usurped emperor who the usurper had usurped usually ends up executed. Unusually, this usurper did not execute the usurped emperor, and the usurped emperor only remained utterly unexecuted because also unexpectedly, the unusual usurper allowed the usurped emperor to remain as co-emperor. Romanus Lecapanus is often known as the gentle usurper. He allowed Constantine VII to remain in the palace and remain as emperor. Maybe, though, he just thought the weak and sickly child would be dead before too long. But Constantine Porphyrogenitus didn't die. 
In fact, he grew up to be a physically strong and healthy man. Romanus was an honourable man and continued to protect Constantine, even if he must have wished he wasn't around to get in the way. On the other hand, Constantine was married to his daughter, so any children they had, who may eventually wear the purple, would be his descendants. Just to make sure, Romanus raised three of his sons, Christopher, Constantine and Stephen, to be co-emperors. This way he could be sure that somebody related to him would eventually inherit the throne. Constantine Porphyrogenitus was a very intelligent and dutiful man, and he knew there was one thing he had to do. He had to survive. One day Romanus would be dead, and he needed to make sure he was still around when it happened. So although he must have hated it, he put up with Romanus being on the throne. Whenever he was called upon to go to a banquet to entertain foreign guests or to sign important papers or just take part in a ceremony, he did his duty without complaining. Survival was his aim and he was determined to succeed. In order to fill his time, he read and read and read and read. He became an expert on almost everything, particularly on imperial duties and ceremonies. There were two other things that made his life bearable. He was a talented painter and loved to paint and he loved his wife. She may have been the daughter of Romanus, but she was loyal to her husband and supported him. But Constantine VII is about to take a back seat in our story. Although he's still emperor, it is the Lecepani who will dominate the next quarter of a century. And next time, we will look at that period of domination, and also find out what happens afterwards. So, have a great couple of weeks, and I'll speak to you next time.